Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Last week, we saw the culmination of history in the full fruition and realization of the kingdom of Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 18 depicted the judgment of Babylon. That is a picture of the final judgment on the wicked judgment on the unbelieving world, and in the judgment of Babylon, he purchased and secured the salvation of his people, and he gathered his bride together for a wedding feast. And so we spent time looking at the the, the exuberant joy and celebration in heaven at the end of the age when Christ has gathered his church to himself without spot, without without blemish, without uh, any impurity at all, and there is joy and worship and praise in heaven. And what happens now is, as we've seen so frequently throughout the book of Revelation, uh, the the vision sort of uh, travels backward in time. So we've come to the end of history and the culmination of the kingdom of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verse 11 of chapter 19, the, 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 the clock gets wound back a little bit, not to the very beginning, Not as though this depicts the entirety of the church age, but it is another depiction of the the final judgment. So we've just seen it in in chapter 18 in the destruction of uh, of Babylon. And now we're going to see it again in a different way as the vision zooms in on the return of Jesus and gives us yet another image of this final judgment of Christ's enemies and thereby the salvation of his people. And we're clued in to the fact that this is a new scene, a new image by the the opening words of verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And the opening of something in heaven tends throughout Revelation to indicate a new section. Something new is starting. And so then, that is after the vision showed him the marriage supper of the Lamb, not necessarily then in chronological sequence the next thing that happens, but certainly after Christ's kingdom is fully established and the marriage of the Lamb has happened, then Jesus doesn't return again and repeat all of this, right? So some, this, it's a new vision. Then I saw, right, heaven opened, and so we have this new section. And we're seeing over and over again in Revelation the coming of Jesus, right? We don't, we don't, I don't read the book of Revelation as though it's one linear story leading up to one final climactic uh, portrayal of the return of Christ. We see the return of Christ portrayed multiple times throughout this book. And we we saw in the seventh bowl judgment at the end of chapter 16, the final judgment that befell the wicked. Uh, We saw, again, the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18. Here we have the same realities depicted in a slightly different way with different imagery. And we'll see it yet again from a different angle in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. So we'll, we'll get to that next week. So we continue to sort of have these reiterations of the return of Christ, and which incorporates both the judgment of God upon sinners and the redeeming and the salvation of his people. And so I'm going to read for you verses 11 through 21 of uh, chapter 19, and we'll consider these verses together this morning. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. May God bless his word to us. Three important images for us to see in this passage, and we'll take them one at a time. But here are the three images for us to see about Jesus, who is clearly the hero, the central character in this scene. First, the radiance of Christ's power. Second, the honor of Christ's name. And third, the fullness of Christ's victory. So one at a time, the radiance of Christ's power. When you look at this scene and you read the depiction of Jesus Christ, power is undeniably visible and present and depicted in poetic and vivid imagery. The power of Jesus is undeniable. The first thing that we see is that he is a rider on a white horse, right? The white horse itself is, a, is an image of, of military victory, military conquest. He's riding a horse. Uh, and uh, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. All right, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, this harkens back to chapter 6, verse 2, when the seals were being opened. Remember, there was a scroll with seven seals, and Christ, as the, depicted as the lamb, was the one worthy to open those seals, break the seals, and open the scroll. And the first of those seals that was broken revealed a rider on a white horse. And he had a bow in his hand and a crown on his head. And it said he came out conquering and to conquer. And I think that is a depiction of Jesus himself. Now, I don't think the first seal was depicting the final return of Jesus. In fact, I think it was, as I argued, whenever that was, that I preached on that passage months ago, uh, that that is an image of, of the way that Christ rides into a spiritual battle and victory with his church throughout the church age, throughout the, the, the age in which we live. But the imagery is very similar. The rider on a white horse, he's got a bow in his hand, a crown on his head, and he comes out conquering. 
We saw some similar imagery back in chapter 14 uh, as the seventh uh, 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 trumpet was uh, blown and, and the earth was harvested. And as the earth is being harvested, it said a white cloud, there was a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And so he harvested the earth, the righteous for salvation and the wicked for judgment. So it wasn't a horse there, it was a cloud, but it was a white cloud and he had a crown on his head and he had a sickle in his hand. So in chapter six, it was a bow, chapter 14, it's a sickle, uh, and uh, it's something different here. It's a sword in his mouth uh, in chapter 19. But clearly, the rider on the white horse is a picture of strength, of power, of victory. We're told in verse 12 that he had, his eyes are like a flame of fire, which is exact language from the opening vision of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. So when John was introducing this letter and telling his readers about what he saw and who revealed this vision to him, he depicts uh, the Son of Man who appeared to him. And he says in chapter 1, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So it's some of the exact language that was used in that, that opening depiction of Christ. And down in verse 16 of chapter one, that same vision, it says in his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. And so the sword from his mouth is a repeat, right? It's, it's calling back that first vision, that initial introduction of Jesus Christ as he appeared to John. And now here's that same one with eyes like flame of fire and with a sword coming from his mouth, riding on a white horse to victory. And I think the imagery of the, the flaming eyes uh, is, is, is to indicate that he truly sees, right? His vision penetrates all. None can hide from him. None can deceive him. He sees perfectly. He, his vision penetrates to the heart. He always judges rightly. And to say that from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword is to say that his words are faithful and accurate. No one can argue with the piercing truthfulness of his speech. When Jesus judges, there is no defense. When Jesus comes in righteous judgment, he is right. His words are true, and his judgment is final and complete. And so the last depiction of Jesus Christ, and this really is, we hear from him more uh, as the book of Revelation concludes, but this is the last time he's described. And so the last sort of image, the last vision we have of Jesus Christ really parallels the vision of Jesus that we saw at the very beginning of this, uh, of this letter. And so you can see a sort of even literary uh, structure here as, as the book is sort of winding to a conclusion. And it's the same Jesus who appeared to John and told him to write these things down that now in this vision appears on a horse riding to victory to judge the wicked. 
the radiance of Christ's power is seen in all of this imagery of the white horse and the flaming eyes and the sword coming from his mouth. And if you just look at verse 15 alone, the images of judgment are, uh, are undeniable. Again, there's the sword mentioned. There's a sharp sword coming from his mouth with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, all right? So uh, the, the, again, the power and effectiveness of the words of Jesus are shown by this image of a sword. So it would be silly for us, I think, to take this literally when I think about what Jesus looks like. He's got a sword sticking out of his mouth. I don't think this is literal. I think this is, this is imagery, symbolic imagery, to depict something true about him, and that is that his words are faithful. His words are unbreakable and undeniable. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, one of the great chapters in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom, it says, he, speaking of the ruler to come, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That's all it takes. When it's time for judgment to fall, all it takes, just like all it took to create everything and to bring life into the world was a word, right? God spoke, let there be, and there was. So, to bring judgment upon the wicked, all it takes is a breath from his mouth. All it takes is a word. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. This is uh, language from Psalm 2, verse 9, which said, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, Jesus' judgment and coming to rule is fulfilling prophetic images and prophetic announcements uh, from many, 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 many years before, back in Psalm chapter 2 and elsewhere, that he would come as a king, and when he comes to rule, he would rule with a rod of iron. That is, there will be no opponent who survives. There will be no enemy of the king who remains in the kingdom. He will rule with a rod of iron. And then the final image in verse 15 the most probably graphic kind of gruesome one is that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. He treads the winepress of God's wrath. And so you have the image of, you know, the grapes being squished out into wine, only this time it's blood. It's the blood of those he is judging and crushing under his feet. That itself is imagery from Isaiah chapter 63, Verses 2 and 3, which says, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Jesus, why are your robes dipped in blood? It's the blood of the wicked whom he is judging. It is a gruesome and graphic picture, and it points to us undeniably the radiance of Jesus' power. When Jesus sets his mind and heart to judge, there can be no defense, no arguing, no talking your way out of it. It comes. It is full. It is final because Christ is undeniably powerful. Friends, we need to see Jesus as he truly is. And pictures like this, scenes like this, go a long way to helping us perhaps unseat 
distorted images of Jesus that we might have in our minds. Certainly cultural ideas about the person of Jesus, even uh, Christian uh, uh, talking points or, or, or portrayals of Jesus can tend toward the sort of, you know, soft-spoken, mild-mannered, uh, you know, almost a, a kind of a weakling who just like floats into rooms with angelic lightness and encourages everybody to just get along. Like that's the Jesus that we often sort of think of. Jesus is just soft and mild and, and, and light and, and, and gentle. Now, don't get me wrong. Gentleness and patience and love are among the fruit of the Holy Spirit that clearly Jesus exhibits. In fact, he exemplifies those characteristics more than anybody else ever has or ever will. So it's not to say that Jesus is not gentle and lowly in heart, as he himself said about himself. But Jesus is no weakling. Jesus is no one to be trifled with. And love doesn't always mean rolling over. The Jesus of Revelation 19 is neither soft-spoken nor mild-mannered. His words are piercing and his actions are devastating in their strength. You know, the scene in the Jerusalem temple that we read about in the Gospels uh, where Jesus you know, flips over the tables and chases out the money changers with a whip, um, you know, it's it, it, it sort of baffles us. And usually when we talk about that scene or we come to that in a, in a reading or teaching of the Gospels, we kind of go like, I don't really know what to make of this because like this doesn't seem like Jesus to us, right? It sort of seems out of step with the Jesus we read about everywhere else. Well, he's usually kind and patient and gen generous and gentle. And here he is like kind of raving, right? Uh, indignant and, uh, and, 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 and like boisterous and almost maniacal in his zeal, right? Um, it, 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 it's hard for us to square that image with the sort of gentle dove-like Jesus that we're so used to. And if that is a challenge for you, if Jesus flipping over a table and chasing people out of the temple yard with a whip is hard for you to stomach, then Revelation 19 probably sounds like it's talking about somebody else entirely. Like, who is this? I don't even recognize this guy. And I think if that's the case, then it's an indication that our vision, our view of Jesus has been distorted. It's been lopsided to gentle and kind and loving and gentle and, and never hurting anybody's feelings. He's kind. He's gentle. He's good. He's loving. But never at the expense of holiness. Never at the expense of righteousness. Never at the expense of justice. Jesus is a conquering king. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus here as it was flipping the tables in the Jerusalem temple, and it's the same Jesus here as it was who was bringing a child into the midst of the disciples that we read about earlier in Mark chapter 9, and saying, whoever receives one of these little ones receives me. It's the same Jesus. Consumed with zeal for his father's house in the temple, blazing with righteous fury against those who spurned the glory of God and oppressed his people. And friends, this is the Jesus that we need. We need a Jesus who will make wrong things right. We need a Jesus who will fight our battles and redeem us from the bonds of the enemy. A Jesus who will forcibly ensure that his kingdom of righteousness and justice will not be interfered with. 
And a Jesus who's too mild or too afraid or too kind to punish sin is not a Jesus that we can trust for a just future. We need a Jesus of unstoppable power. That's the Jesus that we have. So we see first the radiance of Christ's power. The second thing that, that, that rings out to us in this passage is the honor of Christ's name. I don't know if you noticed this when we were reading uh, through it a few minutes ago, how many mentions there are of what he is called or what he is named or even the mystery of his name. The first image that we have, or the first mention that we have is in verse 11. The one sitting on it, that is sitting on the white horse, is called faithful and true. So he's called. He is called faithful and true. We've seen that language used of him elsewhere in Revelation, back in chapter 1, verse 5. The whole introduction to the book, sort of Trinitarian formula, from Father, from Son, from Spirit, you know, grace be to you. Uh, what is said about Jesus is that he is the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. In chapter 3, verse 14, in the letter to the church at Laodicea, that letter is opened with the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The very same two adjectives, faithful and true witness. So he is a witness. He gives testimony to his character, to the glory of God, to the kingdom that's, that he's building, and he is faithful and true. His words don't fail. His words are never false. What he says is right and true, and you can trust it. So he is called faithful and true. The next thing we see in verse 12 is that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What does that mean? He has a name written that nobody knows but himself. And I think it points to us the fact that when it comes to the, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of Jesus, there is always and always will be some mystery here. He is bigger than we could possibly understand or fit into our minds. We can know Jesus truly, but we can never know him fully. I think that's part of why eternity won't feel too long because there's always going to be more of Christ to see and to experience and to come to know. He is, he is bigger and broader than what we can possibly describe or even conceive of. And so to say that his name, he has a name that no one knows but himself, I think it's to say, I am who I am and you only know what I show you. You only know what I reveal to you. And so again, the name of God, the name of Christ, as it's depicted here, is so precious and holy and unique that we don't even necessarily know all that it entails. In verse 13, it tells us that uh, the name by which he is called is the word of God. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And that's consistent with John's theology and John's writing elsewhere. The opening of John's gospel, of course, famously depicts the Son of God as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And without him, nothing was made that was made, right? So everything came into being through him. And then down in verse 14 of John 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So clearly the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal son of God made flesh. And he's called the word. Why is he called the word? Because he is the image. He is the communication of God to man. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He communicates, as it were, himself and his heart and his way and his gospel and his kingdom in his very person. Hebrews chapter 1 uh, says much the same thing when it says of Jesus that he is the, uh, the, ex- the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature, right? In many times, he said, uh, in former times, and in many ways, God has spoken through the prophets, But now in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son, Lord Jesus. And so the name by which Christ is called is the word of God, because he is the one who communicates the heart and way and nature of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. We know what he is like. He is the word of God. And then finally, there's a fourth mention of his name down in verse 16. It says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We saw that title for him back in chapter 17, verse 14. In the final bowl judgment as it was poured out. It said the lamb will conquer them. That is the army of Satan and demons and the wicked of the earth that are gathered for war against him. The lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Inverts it. It's the very same same words, very same idea. What does it mean to be king of kings? It means if you take all the powerful among the world and all the rulers of the various strong nations and put them together, Jesus is the king over all those kings. Right? There's one king to rule them all, right? So he, he is the most powerful of all the kings. He is the most powerful of all the lords. He is the master of masters. There is no authority higher than him. Jesus announced that about himself when he gave the disciples the great commission in Matthew 28, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority, Jesus? All of it. All of it. It's mine. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's what he's called us to do in his unlimited authority. King of kings and Lord of lords, he will not be defeated, he will not be trifled with, he will not be opposed. Greg Veal says, the focus on God's name helps us remember that it is not primarily our name or interests God is concerned about, but rather the vindication of his name And the revelation to the universe that he alone is righteous. All those who follow him will likewise be vindicated solely because of their identification with his name. So we share in the spoils of his victory, if you will, but it's not first for our sake. It's for the sake of the honor of the name of Jesus. He rides into battle on a white horse to conquer and to judge, not first because of his people and to to take care of them. But first, because the honor of God's name has been belittled. God's glory has been demeaned and spurned and insulted. 
And Christ rides into battle to make sure that the name of God is rightly esteemed and that everyone will know he is righteous, he is holy, he is just. Friends, we ought to esteem the honor of Jesus' name above all others, even our own. That's the natural bent for us, is that our name is the most important thing to us. We, we, we care deeply about what other people think about us. How is, is this word or, or this action or this decision or this relationship going to reflect on me? What are people going to think about me based on how I act or how I speak? And at times we, we, we filter what we say or what we do through that lens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look weak here or I'm going to look foolish here. I'm going to be embarrassed in some way. At times, perhaps our, our uh, sense of sort of personal honor and reputation leads us uh, even to sin. It, it might lead us to, to lay down uh, righteous moral standards for the sake of not being embarrassed or not being thought of as, as strange or an outsider. Perhaps it leads us to, to, to keep a, a, a sin struggle private because we, we shudder to think what a friend or a brother or sister in Christ is going to think about me if I tell them that this is what is going on in my mind or my heart or what I'm struggling with. And so perhaps that, that sense of reputation, that sense of honor for ourselves it keeps us from, from really finding the grace and the help and, and the mercy that God intends for us to find. We are so wrapped up so often in our own name, in our own honor. Our men are walking through the book of Joshua together. And uh, there's a scene in Joshua 7, right after uh, the big, uh, you know, crazy defeat of Jericho, where they march around the wall, and on the seventh day they do it seven times, and they blast trumpets, and boom, the walls fall down, and they go in and, and you know, and kill everybody and win the city, just like that. It's like, wow, God is clearly fighting for Israel. God has given them everything, and so it looks like nothing could possibly go wrong, and so they find this little town, AI, and they're, okay, we're going in. We don't even need that many people. We're going to like trim our army down. Just, just a couple of thousand guys are going to go in there. And they get obliterated by this little kind of podunk town after this crazy, mighty victory that God gave them in Jericho. And of course, the reason we're told in reading it is that there's a dude that's sort of keeping some secret sin going on who's buried some of the spoils that he was supposed to destroy. And God's not going to give his people victory while that's going on, while the covenant is being broken among his people. It's a, it's a really kind of sobering passage in a lot of ways. But while Joshua is unaware of what of that sin happening, he just knows we've gone into battle against this little town AI and they killed, they destroyed us. Like, what is going on? So Joshua goes to God and, and he's, he's mourning and he's grieving and he's crying out to God. Uh, you know, what, what are we going to do? Um, the Canaanite army. He says, and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off from the earth. And here's what he says. And what will you do for your great name? Like if your people, right, you are associated with Israel as the covenant keeping God. If you stop protecting us and we're destroyed from the earth, what are people going to think of you? That's what Joshua is asking God. His deepest concern in Israel's defeat was the honor of God's name. That's the right approach. That's the right heart. How often is that our concern? How often is that your concern in the struggles and defeats 
in your own life? Lord, what are people going to think about you based on my life? Are you driven by a desire to see Jesus honored in your life? Do you consider how your decisions, your words, your relationships, your social media use will reflect on Jesus? Christ is vigilant to uphold the honor of his name. May we share in his vigilance and strive for our lives and witness to be a faithful depiction of his glory and honor. So we see the radiance of Christ's power. We see the honor of Christ's name. And the final thing that, uh, that presents itself to us plainly, undeniably in this passage is the fullness of Christ's victory. The fullness of Christ's victory. Again, we've seen that the image of the white horse is one of military victory. The fact that Jesus is on this, this white horse riding in means he's, he's the victor. He's the conqueror. He's the winner. And it tells us in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Listen, when Christ rides out into battle, you don't want to be on the opposing side. Because you're going to lose. If you're not on the side of Christ when he comes to make war, your fate is clearly depicted here. You are food for birds. And that's the most generous way to say it. So he comes in conquering military strength on this white horse. We're told again that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, which we saw depicted again with that same language back in chapter 14, uh, verses 19 and 20. As the earth was harvested, it said, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is, I recall, is about 200 miles. That's a really wide, high sea of blood, as it were, from the winepress of uh, the fury of God's wrath. Christ will surely execute judgment. The victory is full and sure. There is this angelic invitation in verse 17. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Now the invitation is to birds. And the supper that he's envisioning here is a striking contrast with the marriage supper of the Lamb that we just read about at the beginning of this chapter, isn't it? Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 9 told us. The opposite of blessed, that is, cursed, are all those who participate in the great supper of God that this angel has in mind. Because it is an invitation to the birds and the beasts of the earth to feast on the flesh of those who have been destroyed by Christ's righteous judgment. It could scarcely be a more vivid uh, and kind of gruesome picture of the fullness of Christ's victory. The beast, the devil and his agents gather the kings of the, the world and all of the wicked, those who have rejected Jesus and taken the mark of the beast and worshiped the beast instead. He's gathered them all for battle. So you think there's going to be this great clash, right? 
the forces of evil and the forces of good and who's going to win. And as Tom Schreiner says, this victory proves to be ridiculously easy for Jesus. It just takes a breath from his mouth. There's no hint whatsoever of clash, of conflict, of struggle. The kings and the, the, the wicked of the world with the beast are gathered to make war and the lamb rides in, Christ rides in, and it's over. They are utterly destroyed. Now look at, look at the judgment that comes in verse 20. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Now we were introduced to these two beasts back in chapter 13 of Revelation. And the first beast we, we, uh, we saw depicts state persecution. It, it, it's idolatrous government and authority that set itself up against God and oppressed the people of God. And the second beast uh, seems to be false religion. That is like philosophies and ideologies and religions that, that, that oppose Christ, right? That, that, that distort or contradict the gospel. And that second beast is, is called the false prophet as he appears in other places throughout Revelation. So the beast and the false prophet are the two beasts, the sea beast and the earth beast of Revelation chapter 13. And they are both captured. Doesn't say Jesus had to go and find them and there was this big battle. Like they were captured and they were thrown. They were captured and they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The beast and the false prophet are Satan's primary agents in the world, and the fact that they are destroyed seems to me to be an indication that Satan himself is destroyed as well, which is confirmed. Down in chapter 20, verse 10, it says that the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. So I think the fact that his primary agents in the world are destroyed is an indication, or at least implies, that Satan himself uh, has thus been cast down. But we're going to get a more specific, sort of by-name image of his capture and destruction uh, in chapter 20. And so he captures Satan and his minions and his agents in the world, and he casts them into this lake of fire, and the image of fire for judgment is all over the New Testament. Jesus speaks of, uh, of the, the burning of, of fire there, we read actually back in Mark chapter 9 earlier today about why their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, right? This is this endless torment and agony and punishment that comes upon Satan and his demons and all the wicked when they are judged. It is full. It is forever. It is devastating. And then the rest, so you've got Satan and the, the beast and the false prophet uh, who are thrown into the lake of fire. And then the rest, that is all the people on the earth who set themselves up against God and who go out to war against the lamb. The rest were slain by the sword and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In this time and culture, it was an unspeakable, unthinkable dishonor for a dead body to be left out, uh, to be unburied, and sort of exposed to the elements. We actually saw that the, the, there was an image of the church of Jesus in chapter 11, and those two witnesses, that they were killed by the beast, and they, their bodies lie in the, the street for three days, it said. Um, so they were treated with, with dishonor. And in the same way, and to a much greater extent and a much larger scale, that is precisely the disgrace that is heaped upon those who reject Christ, who side with the devil to war against him. They are left out in the open, unburied, 
exposed to the elements and thus their flesh is food for the beasts and the birds. So the battle proves to be not a challenge for the Lord Jesus. He comes marching on this horse into battle and he quickly and fully executes judgment and he destroys his enemies. Good for us to remember, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Doesn't always look like that right now. Doesn't look like that to us as we perhaps look around our world, our culture, our country, and we see the word of God trampled on by foolish men, as our the song we sang earlier said. We see perhaps the people of God pressed down in different ways, marginalized, belittled. The church, certainly in other nations and parts of the world, are, 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 is, is fiercely persecuted and oppressed. So it might not look to us right now like Jesus is winning. But he will. He will certainly win. He will certainly have his victory. When Christ comes to judge, there will be no opponents remaining. And he will usher in his kingdom in righteousness and justice and joy forever. So in this image, uh, this, this repeated uh, depiction now of, of the return of Christ and the judgment on the wicked and salvation of his people, we get this, this undeniable, powerful, vivid picture of Christ as the conquering hero, the, the conquering, victorious military uh, general. We see the radiance of his power, the honor of his name, and the fullness of his victory. And friends, we are invited to place ourselves in submission to this king, to see our lives in the light of his holiness, recognizing we don't have that. We are broken and marred and distorted by sin and by our own selfish sort of grabs for power and for wealth and for pleasure And to the extent that we remain there, to the extent that we do not bow ourselves in submission to this king, to the authority of this Christ, to the extent that we remain in our sin and determined to to pursue our own path and to seek our own glory, we run the risk of becoming a part of this mountain of corpses upon which the birds will feed in this image. Friend, you don't want to be on the opposing side when Christ marches into battle. And he's given us the way to align with him, and that's namely a laying down of ourselves, a laying down of our own lives and our own sense of of rights and, and recognition. And we simply come to Jesus in humble faith and we repent. Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I am broken. I have rebelled against you. I have dishonored you. I have displeased you. I have nothing to plead for myself except that Jesus Christ was crucified for my sins and raised to life for my eternal future. And so we repent of our sins and we trust upon Christ. And then the words of verse 9 become true of us. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We turn to faith in Jesus Christ, turn from our sin and toward Jesus in simple faith, then that's the invitation we receive. 
to, to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the future that we have awaiting us. May we run in faith and humility to Christ and trust in his saving grace. Let's pray together.